occasion is that Jesus has just appointed 12 of his disciples and designated them apostles. And then at verse 17 we read, He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich. For you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now. For you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. Amen. This is God's word. May he add his blessing just to the public reading of it and then to our understanding as we come. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which you gave through men of old, inspired by your Holy Spirit to write down that we might understand the heart and will of our God. Thank you that we, as we come to these words spoken by your Son, Jesus Christ, that they're very important for us. Help us to pay attention to them and be taught from them. Help me as I speak. Help each of us as we listen. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what makes good news? Making a statement to the press immediately following the arrest of Saddam Hussein, our Prime Minister, Tony Blair, said, I very much welcome the capture last night of Saddam Hussein. This is very good news for the people of Iraq. It removes the shadow that has long been hanging over them and the nightmare of a return to the Saddam Regime. Responding quite recently um, to an announcement of the planned withdrawal of British troops from Iraq, President Bush's top foreign policy aide proclaimed it as a basically good news story. On the fourth anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, many in the media are re-examining the justification given by our Western political leaders that Saddam Hussein's regime should be toppled and replaced by a democratically elected government the big question is for everyone still was the war just and I guess everyone here will have an opinion on that and we wouldn't necessarily agree on the final analysis for many the question over whether the invasion of Iraq and the overthrow of Saddam's regime is really good news remains to be determined but there's a bigger question And that's whether the coming of Jesus into the world is really good news. And that's by far a more important consideration and requires our fullest attention. Our sermon series in Luke is based on these amazing words spoken by a solitary angel to the shepherds in the fields outside Bethlehem on the occasion of Jesus' birth. In Luke 2 and verse 10 We read these words, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. 
And immediately following that proclamation, the solitary angel was joined by a huge multitude of additional angels who declared, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. As we come to look at these woes and blessings we've just read together from Luke chapter 6, are we to understand that this great joy and peace are to be the unlimited experience of every man and woman? Or are there conditions that have to be met before these become a reality? And tonight we're going to look at two very contrasting sets of pronouncement that Jesus made uh, in what is often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. In this Sermon on the Plain, Jesus spoke about blessings and woes. Blessings and woes are familiar forms of teaching, both in the Old and New Testaments. We find it, for instance, in Psalm 1. Isaiah 5, in the New Testament, we can see this similar reversal of fortunes in Mary's song in the Magnificat. In Luke 1, in verse 52-53, she sings there after the news has been given to her by the angel that she's carrying the Savior of the world. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but sent the rich away empty. So a little bit of background before we come to actually look at these blessings and woes. The plain here in Luke is best understood as translated in the New International Version as simply a piece of level ground, probably on the side of a hill or a mountain, rather than the kind of sprawling fields that you get in central Canada and parts of the United States and elsewhere in the world. Commentators are divided as to whether they think that this sermon we have here in Luke is simply a shorter version of what is commonly known the Sermon on the Mount, or whether it's a different situation altogether. Um, Most people conclude it is a different sermon and that we shouldn't be surprised about that, that Jesus, uh, we can imagine, would often have repeated himself teaching to a different group. He would have used the same sermon again and again, a little bit like preachers today do. It's, uh, I think, given the apparent density of the 12 disciples, uh, that he may have repeated himself on several occasions, even for their sake, never mind preaching to a different crowd. Imagine if preachers never needed to repeat any teaching because we all absorbed it and put it into action the first time we heard it. And the crowd here, uh, we know from what we've just read, consists of the 12 uh, who have been uh, selected for intense training and designated as apostles. There are other disciples who follow Jesus regularly. They're part of this crowd and there are still others still from other parts of the country. Come together to hear his teaching some to come and to be healed of diseases, freed from the influence of evil spirits that oppress and depress them. And we've seen that it's, it's an emphasis throughout Luke that, that he again and again and again reiterates that Jesus exercises power and authority over the sick and the demon-possessed. And we see even in verse 19 here that there are people in the crowd jostling to get close to him, just to touch him that they might be healed, because power is coming out from him. Now, as this is happening, and probably still within the earshot of others, he turns to his disciples and pronounces these, what William Barclay calls, series of bombshells, that take accepted standards and turn them upside down. So let's put up these lists side by side just to see what Barclay's trying to get at there. Blessing to those who are poor, 
but woe to those who are rich. Blessing to those who are hungry, but woe to those who are well fed. Blessing to those who weep, woe to those who laugh. Blessing to those who are hated, excluded, insulted, and rejected, but woe to those who are praised and popularly accepted. We're going to look at these blessings and woes under just two headings, eternal joys and fleeting pleasures. So first of all, let's look at verse 20. You may want to have your Bible open there so you can scan down. The the words will appear on the screen. Eternal joys, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. This word translated blessed is a word that can equally be translated happy or fortunate. Uh, It's slightly unfortunate for us that happy, our English word happy, has the same root within our language as the word haphazard. And that can suggest an element of chance or luck. Blessed or blessed is a much more settled condition and conveys a sense of joyfulness or bliss. We're told elsewhere in God's word that God gives a kind of peace that the world can't give. And the peace that God gives, neither can the world take it away. It's that sort of settled joyfulness. Does this suggest that Jesus is then advocating his followers take vows of poverty, renounce all worldly goods in an attempt to find the state of settled blessedness? Not at all. Poverty in and of itself is not a blessed situation and can actually be a curse. Uh, The writer in Proverbs in chapter 30, verses 8 and 9 says, Keep falsehood and lies far from me, neither give me poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. I believe what Jesus is addressing here is what J.C. Ryle described as Poverty accompanied by grace. Poverty accompanied by grace. In Matthew's Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, the fuller version of blessed are the poor in spirit refers to those that know that apart from God, they have no resource. And because they have no other resource, they rely on God. That's the sort of person that the Old Testament considers pious. Psalm 40, verse 17 says, Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. In the Expositor's Bible commentary, Walter Liefeld says that the poor in Luke implies those who are utterly dependent on God. And it is these that the kingdom of God is open to. You see, the rich in this world are often self-reliant. And so it is to the humble poor that Jesus pronounces this blessing of access to the kingdom. Now, it's not that rich people are excluded because of their, world, because of their wealth, but their worldly security can make it difficult for them to admit their sinful state and acknowledge the true source of their wealth. Remember, it was Jesus himself that taught his disciples that sometimes it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for some rich people to enter his kingdom. Way back in chapter 4 and verse 18, Jesus has already 
stated quite categorically that it is the poor who are the special recipients of the good news that he has been anointed to proclaim during the year of the Lord's favor. Often, those who are on the breadline sense their need for God more than others. Many of you will have had the privilege of traveling in third world or poorer countries than the United Kingdom. You know that as you gather, particularly with poorer Christians, just how grateful they are for everything that God has given them. And that sometimes they will even share out of their poverty, uh, very lavishly expressing their concern and regard for us. Leon Morris says that these poor receive the kingdom now. The tense there is not that yours will be the kingdom, but that yours is the kingdom of God. The second blessing is found in the first part of of, uh, verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. As with poverty, we mustn't uh, assume that being hungry or starving gives a person uh, automatic entitlement to Christ's eternal blessing. One commentator suggests that Matthew's fuller version of blessed are you who hunger and thirst after righteousness makes explicit what is implicit here. This may be the case, or maybe it's just that Luke is simply concerned to highlight the need of those who hunger now. We might paraphrase it then, blessed are those who recognize their need. Blessed are the needy. Tonight, we're challenged, even thus far in the sermon, to think about what our needs are. Anne Hawkes and Robert Lowry, writing a hymn some time ago, captured this thought when they write these words, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. I wonder when any of us last prayed that in our quiet time in the morning, as we go into the day. As we look to the Lord for what our day might provide us with, it's the cry of our heart, I need thee. Jesus is saying here, in this beatitude, blessed are those who recognize that and can cry out to me. It is to those who recognize their need that Jesus promises satisfaction. Or put another way, it is always the needy, but never the greedy, who find full satisfaction. The third beatitude, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. As with the previous beatitude, it's difficult to imagine that Jesus is simply referring to the sort of person that just likes to bawl their eyes out. For on any occasion, maybe you have friends like that, or maybe you're that sort of person yourself. Um, I remember doing a children's talk one time in a previous church, and I said um, to the children, you know, do any of your parents cry at a sentimental film? And this child put their hand up and said, yes, my dad does. <laughs> Some people just like a good cry. I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to. Matthew uh, has no absolute equivalent of this. in in his series of Beatitudes, but rather talks about those who mourn and the promise of comfort. Now, there may be a sense here behind what Jesus is saying that those who weep not only feel a sense of their own guilt before a holy God, but maybe they carry the weight or the burden of a broken and hurting society. 
The likelihood that that actually is the case will become more apparent when we look at the contrasting woe in verse 25, second part of that. And as I studied for this this week, you know, I had to ask myself the question, when did I last have that sense of my sin grieving a holy God and was willing to weep about it? When did I last look at the way that my family live, my extended family, or the people around me in my society, and, and look at how the United Kingdom or Scotland as a nation is behaving before a holy God and carry a sense of burden responsibility to be able to bring that sin before God and cry over it. Sometimes we can be very judgmental and we can criticize sinners and sinfulness. We can point the finger and say we're so glad that we're not like that. We've got a righteousness and a holiness and a standard that we're not like these people who go around being so wicked and sinful. Maybe it's that we've lost the sense of justice or judgment in a world where right has become wrong and wrong has become right. Maybe in our age of tolerance and acceptance of alternative behaviors, the church, along with the world, has lost its reverence and its fear of a holy God. Maybe we've become immune to other people's sufferings. You watch the newscasts in the evening and you see something terrible that's happening in the world about the escalating deaths and murders and atrocities in Iraq or Afghanistan. Or you see something from Sudan, from Eritrea or some other part where millions and millions of children are starving to death. You know, maybe as Christians it would be a good, just a good thing to switch the telly off at that point and carry the images and something of the pain of that people suffering to God in prayer. Because if not, always the newscaster will switch to the sport and we will forget very soon that other people have a deep, deep plight they need our help with. Can I ask you a question? Would you be willing to commit yourself to weep for our nation? Would you be willing to stand before God and cry out that he would have mercy on us? The story is told of a student who was visiting Robert Murray McShane's church in Dundee. And the church is still there. Have you ever visiting Dundee? The pulpit that's in the church is not the one that McShane would have preached from. Uh, it's in a hall through the back. And the student, along with others, was shown to the very pulpit uh, that's now in storage of where Robert Murray McShane would preach and see hundreds, if not thousands, of people respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. In Dundee, in his very brief 29 years that he spent on this earth, he did so much for the kingdom in Scotland. And the person who was showing the students said, Would you like someday to be able to preach like Robert Murray McShane? Oh, yes, the student thought, Wow. He says, Well, just go and stand up in that pulpit there. And he said, uh, Standing there, think of what your favorite text would be. So the students thinking, Bible students thinking about, if he had a congregation of sinners before him, what he would have to say to them from God's word. The guide said, if you want to preach like Robert Murray McShane, put your elbows on the lectern and put your head in your hands and weep over the sin of Dundee. Cry over the lostness of these people that Jesus came to save. Jesus says, 
Blessed are those who weep, for you will laugh. I think that captures something of the mood of what Jesus is saying there. Jesus, in his synagogue sermon in chapter 4, goes on to speak of mourning, giving way to gladness. And this beatitude and the previous one contrasts the situation between what is experienced now. Weeping may endure for a night, for a season, but joy, joy comes in the morning. Your weeping over your own sin and the sin of others will turn to laughter, Jesus says. Let's look at the final beatitude there in verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you, when they insult you and when they reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. This final beatitude concerns persecution because of the Son of Man. This was to become, if you read on through the Gospels and into Acts and the rest of the New Testament, a natural course of events for the apostles. They would be hated, they would be excluded, they would be insulted and rejected, yet they would be happy in that settled blessed sins because of their reward in heaven and because they're following in the footsteps of the Old Testament prophets. Now the idea of laughter associated with persecution maybe seems a very alien one to us. Yet rejoicing and leaping for joy are not concepts you would naturally associate with hatred, exclusions, insults, and rejections. Yet that is exactly what Jesus is saying to his followers because of what lies ahead of them. They don't need just to stoically endure their present sufferings, but they can experience outrageous happiness since those who share in Christ's sufferings also share in his reward. Some years ago, Jeanette and I, uh, my wife and I, were very privileged to have stay in our house a Romanian pastor who had been mentored by Richard Von Brandt, uh, a very, very godly man. Richard Von Brandt had spent 14 years in a communist prison for his faith. And on one occasion, after one of the multiple beatings that he endured, that shattered vertebrae in his spine, he was thrown back into his prison cell. And he said that lying there in the presence of God, he felt the most outrageous joy and settled peace. Such is the experience of those who identify so closely with Jesus. Jesus promised his followers that while never far away from trouble, they would be absurdly happy. I can't remember where I picked this up, but recently I read of a Christian who said, I like getting into hot water for my faith because it keeps me clean. I wish I'd written down at the time when I read it who said it, but um, actually like I would actually like to have said it myself, but I didn't. But, you know, we must be careful not to misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. This is suffering directly associated with being his followers. And not just getting into trouble of our own accord, either because of our deeds or temperament. Peter, probably speaking from experience, tells his readers that if they suffer, it should be because they are identifying closely with Jesus. It shouldn't be for meddling 
in somebody else's affairs or for any criminal activity. You can find that in 1 Peter 4, verse 15. In a previous church, I used to pastor. I used to get complaints from a woman who who felt very hard done by because, in her words, people went out of their way to avoid her. As graciously as I can thinking of this woman, I say no wonder. She was an incessant gossip and a constant moan. She's the sort of person that a pastoral colleague of mine described as the person you want to rush up and greet warmly by the throat. I'm sure none of us would fall into that kind of category. But be warned. Be warned, if you're simply obnoxious, then don't imagine you will be rewarded when people don't want to associate with you. Jesus says this is reward for people not wanting to associate with you because you reflect the pure and the holy character of Jesus. And if that's the case, then rejoice. Because you have a glorious future ahead of you. I should have set off my watch earlier. uh, Time is really rushing on here. Let's look finally at the fleeting pleasures as contained in that reading. The woes are only found in Luke, and they challenge the values that are widely regarded as desirable even in our world today. What Jesus is warning his hearers about is an attitude of self-sufficiency, which can prove fatal to spiritual development. The word woe, as translated in the NIV, is a Greek word um, pronounced O-R-E, O-I-E. And it originally conveyed a meaning of horror, expressed compassionately like, oh, how dreadful, or how terrible. And always with that sense of regret, you know, alas, for the wicked. It's not an expression that's to be understood as a threat. It's not that Jesus is saying, woe to you, rich. Uh, My mother used to have a little phrase when I was a child. Uh, She said, Woe betide you, Rodney, if I catch you. I always felt she could have done it with a little bit more compassion. It always carried an intimidating threat. But when Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, we get the sense of the feeling or the mood of his expression of how he feels about the wicked. He's not out there to get them. He's out there to feel for them in their lostness. Woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. This woe isn't expressed simply because these people are wealthy, but because they have chosen current pleasure over future blessing. Riches have become these people's God, and they have no need of the living God. They have an attitude completely opposite to that commended in verse 20. And what Jesus says to these people, well, folks, you've got it. That's actually what it means. You've got it. The verb that Jesus used, that they have received their comfort, is taken from the financial business world. It means paid in full. It's written on a receipt. That's it. Transaction over. Paid in full. You put your trust in riches, that's all you're going to get. It's done. There's nothing more to come. You have it now. The second woe in verse 25, woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. means pretty much the same as the previous one, but with a greater emphasis on that condition, both present and future, of those who only find satisfaction in indulging their greedy appetites. 
To these people, Jesus warns of future hunger. Live for today without any concern of tomorrow. And that's all you have. Maybe you remember that story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. It was a rich man, we're told in Luke 16, verse 19, who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and he was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, and neither can anyone cross over from there to us. In this woe, Jesus is saying, how dreadful for those who live only to satisfy their present appetite. One day soon they're going to discover for themselves just how empty they are. And then the third woe, woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. You know, Jesus is not a killjoy. Jesus must have laughed often. Uh, We don't maybe like to think of laughter uh, in church, particularly if we're from a slightly, you know, doer background. But Jesus must have laughed often with his disciples. But considered side by side with verse 21, the second part of that. What we are surely to understand here is that those who take sin lightly and maybe even find the things that are abhorrent to God amusing, one day will regret their own superficiality and shallowness. Howard Marshall suggests that Luke is referring to here as something that is evil laughter. And you know, I wonder, as we see our society slip further and further from the moral standards based in God's word and the Christian values, then I've seen, even in my relatively short lifetime, how humor has suffered in itself. I've got a question for us as Christians. Should we find funny the things that contravene God's holy laws? Now, there may well be groups of people and individuals giving voice to what one commentator calls a carefree expression of contentment with the success of the present. But Jesus warns, soon such laughter will change to mourning and weeping, for which there will be no future comfort. And so the final woe. Woe to you when men speak, when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. This fourth and final woe describes people who enjoy a good reputation among men, but with no regard or concern about their reputation before God. What we're warned of here is desiring at any cost to be liked by all men. The false prophets of the Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter, are scornfully judged and condemned by God. And yet, it was possible for them to enjoy a good reputation 
among men. We see that in the life of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who for 40 years brings God's message to the heart of God's people and God's judgment, impending judgment upon them. And yet they can raise up people who say things that Jeremiah doesn't say. Much more palatable things. Much easier things to listen to. Tell us nice things. I think it's the prophet Ezekiel is told. We don't want to hear that stuff that challenges our lifestyle. Tell us good stuff. The Apostle Paul warns Timothy that in the last days, even in the church era, where the Holy Spirit of God is poured out, where no man needs a teacher to tell him, this is how God wants you to understand, because we all have the Holy Spirit who can teach us. And yet even in that era, Paul says, there will be people who want to hear what they want to hear. And to that end, they will appoint even pastors and teachers to simply say what it is they want to listen to. We live in a day when things are becoming very liberal, even in the teaching in the church. And you know, being held in high regard is not the same as universal popularity. There is a place to give appropriate praise and thanks and and to honor those who do well among us, even in the Christian community. Maybe in church we're not good at doing that. Maybe some of us come from background and culture or a family or a church situation where we always like to pull each other down and never build each other up realistically. We need to learn how to do that. But Jesus says to us here, isn't it bizarre that you can feel comfortable about being accepted by those who reject me. And so in conclusion, I ask the question that I began with. So is this still good news? Well, yes, it is. Because, first of all, it reveals God's gracious benevolence. We can certainly see that those who suffer now are to be rewarded in the future eternal kingdom. And that's good news. But it's also good news because it confirms God's righteous judgment. It's good news. Is it good news for those to whom Jesus expressed these woes? Well, what's about to happen to them in the future if they don't turn isn't good stuff. But I still think it's encapsulated in that angelic message to the shepherds because this is good news. In fact, I'm going to be as controversial to say that if God doesn't judge the wicked, he isn't God. Because he's proclaimed in his word that that's what he's going to do. He's not like some of us that are kind of softy, softy parents that say to our children, if you don't behave, then you will. And then we don't carry it out. God is a righteous judge. If God didn't reward the faithful and at the same time punish the faithless, he wouldn't be God. But thirdly, maybe more importantly, To a congregation like this, it reaffirms God's mercy and the offer of salvation. This is also good news because in proclaiming these woes, Jesus has alerted the ungodly to their final condition. But actually, he's alerted the godly to the final condition of the ungodly. And Jesus says, as the Father sent me into the world, so I send you. You and I may be part of that community on earth that is very privileged and highly honored to already know the good news. And knowing what's going to happen to the ungodly gives us that sense of responsibility to go and bring the good news to lost people, to weep and lament over their condition, that this holy, righteous God might move in our day and generation 
And we will see lots and lots and lots of lost people change from being those who will face judgment and an eternity without God to being those who are part of the blessed kingdom that Jesus is anointed to proclaim. Let's pray.